this morning, it's a little bit more lighthearted in terms of the tone from what we have been going through. We just finished going through the entire book of Daniel. And of course, when we're on some heavy subjects like the Great Tribulation and things like that, which we need to learn about, I thought it might be nice to take just a little bit of a break and do something that's still very scriptural, as we'll see, and it's still very serious when we get to the serious part. <laughs> but we're going to be looking at the fact that God actually does have a sense of humor. Truly, if God was the agent of creation, and of course he was, God created everything, so it says in the Bible in Colossians, and Jesus Christ was there at the moment of creation. He's the agent. So if he created everything, and since everything he made was for his glory and for his purposes, then even humor was made on purpose and for his purposes. Now, is it disrespectful? I've read some scholars who say, yes, it's terribly disrespectful to see that there are jokes or humor in the Bible. The Bible is a serious book, and we should take it seriously. And I would not disagree with them on that point. <laughs> it is a serious book, and the serious story and the redemptive story that's there for us is there because we have a serious problem called sin, and we need a Savior. So everything in God's Word points us to our Savior if we're open to that. However, there are things in the Bible that I think are unmistakably humorous. It's there. Now, it's not stand-up comedy necessarily, and so I don't think it's disrespectful if we find the kind of humor that does show up because it's situational humor. It's the same kind of situations that we find humor in in our culture today. Uh, the same reasons that we would find humor in things like weddings and work and relationships and marriage, all those kinds of things show up in scripture. And they're the normal quirky personalities that show up too. And boy, are there ever some quirky personalities in scripture. And humor doesn't always just jump right out at us from scripture. Sometimes because things don't translate in language, maybe there's a sound alike word that sounds like another word, like epiphany and epimony that we learned in Daniel, that epiphany is like the manifest God or God shown through this person. And yet epimony, which was the nickname of a particular person, means the madman. So yeah, there are some things that we might not get at first glance, <clears throat> but we know that all humor is there on purpose. And there are some things that are very readily apparent to us, even in our English language. Things that show us that there is humor there include things like plot twists. You're going down the road, there's a ton of these in scripture, and all of a sudden, er, turns a corner, goes down a different path than we expected, and it's funny because of the way things come out, especially when there's a reversal, because that's something that very often gets a good chuckle, a reversal of fortune. There are witty statements, many of them, I must say, that appear in the Proverbs. <laughs> Just look at some of those couplets, and you'll see that there's some things that are pretty funny there hyperbole, exaggerated analogies, not necessarily meant to be taken literally, but they are there to make something memorable and to implant some lesson in our mind so that we can grasp them more clearly. Irony, sometimes that can be saying the exact opposite of what you mean. And sometimes if it's facetious irony, it can be done as a put down, as we'll see in one of our examples today, straight out of scripture from the Old Testament. So here's one that we'll kick things off with to let you know that there are some humorous situations that do occur even in very serious stories. 
Take Abraham and Sarah, for examples. Imagine yourself in this situation. A heavenly messenger delivers the news that you are going to have a child. And you think, well, that's interesting because I'm 90 years old. Yeah, I think that deserves at least a chuckle, don't you? Apparently, I'm not the only one who thought that was funny because Sarah, who eavesdropped on that conversation, and she chuckled, but she chuckled to herself. And that's why one of the visitors actually even asked Abraham, why did your wife laugh when I told this news? And of course, it gets even more funny because Sarah actually said, I didn't laugh. And it's sort of a situational humor that we would see even in a sitcom today. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. There's that back and forth that goes on in scripture. That's the way it appears to us. And the Lord, through this angelic messenger, is trying to get this really serious point across. And yet it's so ludicrous in Sarah's mind that she, who is well advanced in years, that's a quote. I'm not trying to diss Sarah here. She just doesn't think that's possible. And so she finds it laughable. Well, it's a funny situation no matter how you slice it, really. Some things are funny just because they're unexpected. Some things are funny because there's a slightly uncomfortable situation and it becomes a release of this discomfort for us. Sometimes we make things worse by the way we react to that, as is the case with Sarah and her reaction. The fact that this situation has elements in which we can find humor doesn't take away from the incredibly serious message that this whole incident and story, it's a true story, has for us in the Bible. The story that gets conveyed to us through Abraham is God is making a promise and God always keeps his promises. Even the promises that seem ludicrous at the time because nobody would have thought that this would have been possible, but God knew it and he promised it and he came through with his promise. And he promised to bless all the nations in the world through Abraham's descendants, including through this child of promise. It doesn't diminish the future event that shows up too, another very serious event, when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice this child of promise, his own son on the altar. And then God, of course, sends a substitute at the last minute. What's that a foreshadowing of? Jesus Christ, who becomes the substitute for us as a sacrifice. And that's a wonderful thing. We see that foreshadowing that becomes huge in history. And in looking back at that, it's one of the many things that point like neon signs to Jesus and his atoning work on the cross for us. So yes, it's very serious and it's all about God's plan and about redemption, but there are some chuckling moments in the middle of all that. Oh yes, and what did Abraham and Sarah name this son of promise, you might ask? Laughter, Isaac, which means laughter. So there's humor and laughter and joyfulness in a lot of different places in the scripture, including this particular one. Let's look at a different kind of humor, and we would call that just wit or witty statements. Reverend Marion Daniel Shutter wrote a book on this subject, in fact, and he says that if we were to find certain sentences in literature other than the Bible, we would find them funny. For example, if you came across this sentence, to stick your nose into someone else's squabble is as foolish as yanking on a wild dog's ears. Wouldn't you think that's kind of humorous and witty? Well, that expression is actually found in the Bible because that's a paraphrase of Proverbs 26, 17. So there are many witty statements and humorous statements that are easy to recall, and that's the point. 
because the humor that's there is there on purpose. And one of the purposes of humor, it helps stick in our memory so that we can remember it and be able to recite it later. A witty statement can conjure up for us a mental image. So we're looking at something in our mind's eye, literally looking at a situation that we might not have had there if it had been expressed differently. Here's another example. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what did you see in your mind's eye just then? Didn't you find yourself picturing a camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle? Come on, come on, admit it. <laughs> I know I was. Of course, I'm looking at my paper, so I would expect that. But I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus even said things like that in his teaching, because he knew that people would be imagining certain things that he was implanting so that they could see the ridiculousness of a hyperbole. And that's why wit and humor and hyperbole often go hand in hand, and it's good, memorable teaching. Some people claim that this particular saying has more than one meaning. It could be a hyperbole, an exaggerated statement meant not to be taken literally, but to help make this memorable point. And in this sense, we understand that it's not just difficult, but it's impossible for a camel to make its way through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's impossible unless it's an extremely exaggeratedly large needle, but we wouldn't see that. So it would be impossible, therefore, for a rich person, someone who is exalting riches above God, to enter the kingdom of God. All right, that's good. I can go with that. But there's another layer to that as well, because some people claim that there was a narrow gate in the old Jerusalem wall called the eye of the needle because it was so small. And if this was true, then you could see why a fully loaded camel would not be able to make it through that gate. But if a camel lightened its load, eh, you see the comparison? And if it got down on its knees, another picture, mental image of humility, an act of humility and vulnerability, then it could make its way through that gate. And some of the doors that you would see in Jerusalem even today would be very small so that somebody would have to duck to go through because it was easier to defend that way because somebody could lop off your head if you made yourself vulnerable that way. Both of these things could certainly be true because they both teach the same point and they're highly effective and they're kind of humorous too. Sarcasm, you think, oh, wait a minute, they wouldn't use sarcasm in the Bible, would they? Well, yes, I think they would. You know that mocking tone that people get when they're using sarcasm? We might call it being snarky today. Most often, sarcasm is a form of irony with a statement meant to insult somebody. Now, we don't see a lot of sarcasm in the Bible, but oh, it's there. Believe me, it's there. Take, for example, the time when Elijah had a contest with Baal-worshipping priests up on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. Here's the setup. All right, Israel continually had a problem with idol worship. One of the problems they faced many times was being enticed to worship Baal, a pagan idol associated with fertility of both the land, which means it would be fertile land or producing crops, and people, because the fertile people would produce children. So the worship of Baal and his consort Asherah was seen, especially during the times of the judges. As we saw, those of us who were listening in to Mark Elwell teach in his Judges series, that was extremely prevalent back in that era of Israel's history. Now, Baal worship was dangerous for Israel. Why? Because, first of all, they worshiped a created thing, 
a man-made thing rather than worshiping the creator. And secondly, because the different practices associated with Baal worship, remember that he's the God related to fertility, included some, shall we say, highly immoral activities. In some cases, and this is where it really gets dark, to appease Baal, a worshiper could actually sacrifice a human being, usually the firstborn of the one making the sacrifice. And we know that because of Jeremiah 19.5. So can you see why Baal worship was considered off limits by God? I would hope so. Baal worship was especially strong during the reign of King Ahab and Elijah, God's spokesperson, his prophet, had had enough. Let me simply read these accounts because it's so well worded for us right out of scripture. And I'm reading this from the New Living Translation, starting in verse 17. When Ahab saw him, Elijah, he exclaimed, So, is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I can't help but see humor already in this thing. Can you hear the situational humor creeping in already? Think about how much trouble Ahab has caused Israel by encouraging Baal worship. And yet he sees the prophet of God and calls Elijah the troublemaker. Talk about the beam in your own eye pointing out the, the little speck in somebody else's eye. It's certainly happening here. Elijah isn't having it though, and so his righteous indignation is pegging the meter. And we pick it up in verse 18. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshiped the image of Baal instead. Note, Elijah, filled with the desire to prove that Yahweh is the true God, and having faith that his God was the God, throws down the gauntlet, so to speak, and he offers a very unique challenge, as we see starting in verse 19. Now, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, that female consort of Baal and the goddess of fertility. And they were supported by Jezebel, as he says here. Or it could be translated, who eat at Jezebel's table, which means they got their feet under the table and they're very familiar with these worship practices, so to speak. Verse 20, so Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets of Mount Carmel. It must have been some sight. And Joy and I have been at the top of Mount Carmel, and it would have been filled on this sort of plateau with people, especially if they had 450 priests of Baal. It would have been a huge event. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver? He's speaking to Israel here. How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. You could probably have heard a collective gulp. Verse 22, and then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and will lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call in the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. 
The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Little time out here. I can't help but chuckle a little bit simply because they agreed to this challenge. <laughs> Think about what Elijah is challenging them to do. Put stuff on the altar, but don't set fire to it. And let's see if God will do it for us. I see that as being highly unusual. And I think that it's worth chuckling about because these people readily agreed to it. Like, sure, okay, we're up for the challenge. Let's go. So let's pick it up at verse 25. Then Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bowls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bowls and placed it on the altar. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Crickets, crickets. You see the humor? And then they danced, hobbled around the altar, made all kinds of ruckus for hours. Nope. Some of the worship activities and practices of Baal worshipers back then included some highly unorthodox actions, including whipping themselves, thinking that somehow that would help appease Baal or that he might get, they would get his attention and he would show up. They would even cut themselves. And sometimes they would work themselves up into an ecstatic state. So it was a kind of a bizarre scene up there at the top of Mount Carmel. This is where Elijah is just about to get sarcastic. He has watched the priests of Baal doing all kinds of crazy things for hours. And this is what he says to them, as you can see in front of you here. This is verse 27 of 1 Kings 18. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or as it was originally worded, away, quote, doing his business, which means relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. Can you hear the sarcasm in there? Oh my goodness, does that sound sarcastic to you? It's dripping with sarcasm. And yet his righteous indignation is so far up that I think it's warranted. And that's how Elijah deals with it. They had strayed so badly. Elijah knows that Israel has strayed so badly away from God's commands to them that he thinks, this is going to take something drastic to show them the difference between this crazy God that they started to incorporate into their worship practices versus Yahweh, the true God, the creator of everything. So he's telling them, you need to make a choice, folks. It's going to be one or the other, and I'm going to demonstrate to you today which one you should choose. Now, we have some humorous contrast that starts to happen here. These Baal worshipers continued all afternoon doing terrible things to harm themselves Evening came, still nothing, more cricket sounds, no response, as it says in verse 29. And then comes Elijah's turn. He first had to get some help to rebuild the altar of the Lord because it would be sort of like a big fire pit made of stones, and it had been torn down long ago. So they actually had to rebuild the altar before he could even have this big challenge. They got the stones set up. He had them dig a trench all around the stone altar, enough to hold several gallons of water, in fact. And then let's pick it up at verse 33. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water, 
and pour the water over the offering and the wood. How many of you all have been camping in the rain? You know where I'm going with this. It's nearly impossible to start a good campfire because everything's wet. And what does Elijah do? He wets down the altar, including the wood. Verse 34, after they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. Apparently one dousing with water wasn't enough. And when they were finished, he said, okay, go ahead and do it a third time. So they did it as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Can you see the setup for some amazing reactions? Absolutely. So after using sarcasm as the priests of Baal, who had done everything they could think of to get their God's attention, and they had failed, Elijah steps up to the Lord's altar, and it's his turn. And you can hear, Thank you for that. Verse 36, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walks up to the altar and prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the great men of faith, starting with these different generations that result in Israel, the nation of Israel. And when you see Jacob, sometimes in translations, it will be interspersed with Israel because God actually changed his name to Israel. So sometimes when it's referring to the man, in terms of the ancestors, he uses the term Israel to refer to Jacob, just so you'll know. And then let's get back to verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the man, Elijah is praying, prove today that you are God in Israel, the nation this time, and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. He wants these people to know he's not doing this for fame or glory or a pat on the back. He's doing this at the Lord's command because he is God's spokesperson. He's God's prophet. Verse 37, O Lord, answer me, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. There it is. Simple prayer. I read it out loud and timed it. it took me 14 seconds and I wasn't in a rush. Think about the contrast here. Baal worshipers, all day long doing crazy things to try to get their God's attention and no response. Elijah prays for 14 seconds. If I were standing there in Elijah's sandals, I think I would have finished the prayer and started motioning to the other people standing fairly close to the altar. I think you need to step back a few steps. Look what happens next, verse 38. Immediately, doesn't take all day, Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and even the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Sounds a lot like some of the reaction of the people back in Daniel that we just finished studying when they really saw the power of God at work they would be awestruck. And that's what happened on Mount Carmel with Elijah as well. In fact, speaking of Daniel, looking back at that, this kind of reminded me a little bit of that. There's one passage in particular in chapter six. I'm sure it didn't feel very humorous at the time, especially not to Daniel, but the setup for a humorous reversal is unmistakable. Even a king was struck with awe and wonder because of the power of God unleashed in this situation. Daniel was in the lion's den, because some jealous conniving Babylonian satraps or governors convince a king to pass a ridiculous law. He knows that the law is gonna be so ridiculous 
well, he doesn't, but the satraps do. He was a little bit uh, oblivious, actually. The satraps were trying to get Daniel in trouble because they didn't want him elevated in position because he would be in charge of them. They didn't want him being their boss. But they know because he is so committed to his worship of Yahweh that he would have to break this law. And so, sure enough, he breaks the law because he's committed to Yahweh and he gets thrown in the lion's den. By the way, you want to know, this is a little trivia here, but do you want to know how we know that the lions were from southern Mesopotamia? Because when the angel showed up, the headline said, well, shut my mouth. <laughs> All right, moving right along. What was the king's response to this powerful example of God's sovereignty? He was awestruck and he was overjoyed. It says so in Daniel 6, 23, which means he probably laughed. I can imagine that when he saw Daniel coming out because he felt badly that he was in there in the first place, but he knew he couldn't reverse the law. He probably went, oh, I can't believe it. You're still alive. It was joy-filled. There was laughter involved. So it's not the kind of humor that we normally think of in terms of stand-up humor or that kind of a joke, but there was joy involved in that. And beyond that, the king was so convinced that Yahweh was worthy of worship that he sent a new decree around to everyone in his kingdom, which was quite vast, that people should worship the God of Daniel. You see the reversal of fortune that happens there too? It causes people's jaws to drop and it brings some joy-filled laughter. Now, speaking of a re reversal of fortune, Several of you who've been a part of Living Water for years, you know this story pretty well, but I'm going to just give you the boiled down version of it because this is, for me, if I was looking back in my history, just like we look back in Israel's history, this was a biggie for me. It was really big. Sometimes when we see something so amazing that we have no words to express what we're feeling, we laugh, possibly because it's so unexpected. And that's one of the factors of laughter, an unexpected turn of events, especially when there's a reversal involved. Like when Joy and I and our three young kids were getting ready to move back to Michigan from New York, we had to put a rental truck on a credit card, not knowing how we were going to pay for that thing at the time. But at the last church service that we attended at the church that we had joined while we were in New York, the pastor calls us up at the close of the service. He prays for us. He tells the people we've come on faith. They're leaving by faith. Let's take a love offering for them. We stood up there and cried as they did that. We were flabbergasted. And then after the service and after the love offering, they presented this wad of money to us and said, guess how much it is? Turned out that it was $1 shy of what the rental truck cost us. What was our reaction? We didn't know whether to laugh or cry, so we just did both. <laughs> more laughter, more incredulous laughter. And then the next day after we'd loaded up our truck and we we're heading out, might've been a couple of days later, we drove by the parsonage, which was on the same property as that church that we had attended and enjoyed getting to know those families so well so that our kids could say goodbye to the pastor's kids because they had played together while we were there. Sweet family. And Joy, who had grabbed a sweater that had been packed in a box all the time we had been in New York and finally drug that sweater out, had the sweater on, and she starts to get weepy-eyed as we drive into the parking lot. She reaches into the pocket where she normally kept a Kleenex, and guess what she pulls out? a crumpled $1 bill. Ah, you see, God provided exactly to the dollar how much we were going to need to pay for that rented truck. Can you see why that's a big deal for me and why I haven't forgotten it? Mm -hmm. It was it was incredible. This was miraculous in my mind, just like the kind of stuff that we're reading about, these reversals that create joy and tears and laughter and proclamations of God's goodness and greatness. 
because we couldn't take credit for any of that. We didn't have a clue. I was bankrupt spiritually and emotionally and financially at that moment, but God provided for us in a miraculous way. Well, here's another shut my mouth moment. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah, who was ministering in the temple, and this is in Luke chapter one, so it's a setup for the Christmas story that we look at almost every year. And well, yeah, every year. An angel tells Zechariah that he and his wife are gonna have a son. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like Abraham and Sarah. Zechariah can't believe this news because he and Elizabeth are both, quote, well along in years because he demonstrated disbelief in saying, how is this to be? And Gabriel's basically saying, what do you mean, how is it to be? I come from God. God's the one who sent me here. You're going to question me. What do you mean, how is it to be? He considered that sort of disbelief. And I'm not sure that Gabriel has a Jewish accent that way, but forgive me for getting straight along in there. Because he demonstrates disbelief, an angel strikes him mute. And he says, you shall not be able to speak again for some time. Why is that? I think because God is teaching him something, but he's going to teach us something as well in this humorous incident. They were going to name the baby Zachariah, by the way, when all this starts to play out. And people were saying to Elizabeth, shouldn't you name him after his daddy? Isn't he going to be Zechariah, like Zechariah the second or something? I don't know if they put a second in there, but she's going, no, no, no. I, I think that his name's supposed to be John, because that's what the angel had said that they were supposed to do that. So then because Zechariah can't speak, they're trying to do handmade gestures and sign language and stuff, trying to ask him, but who's he supposed to be? He gestures for a tablet and starts writing it down. And he says, his name shall be John. Aha. Uh -huh. He obeyed the angel's command, said, yes, I'm going to name him John, as you told us he should be. And at that moment, when he wrote that, he could speak again. All that has a little humor associated with it, if you're looking for it. Now, it's not goofa kind of humor, but it's like, wow, isn't that funny? So it's a shut my mouth moment, literally for Zachariah. And it shows that he speaks most clearly when he was silent. Mm. And there's some irony there too, and a reversal. So here it is again, God shows up. Sometimes he sends an angel to do his bidding. Sometimes he shows up as the incarnate Christ, as we saw a couple of times in the book of Daniel. But there's no way, humanly speaking, how the people in these stories, and they are true stories, they can't meet their need. They're completely bankrupt, so to speak. They're powerless. And that's why these stories resonate so much with us. Because it's at that low moment in their lives, the dark night of the soul for some of them, when God shows up and demonstrates his power and his care for them and his provision in an unmistakable way, which is why we remember them so much. And the result is laughter. Check this out, Luke 1, starting in verse 39. A few days later, Mary hurried, and this is not a few months later, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Results in laughter. All these miracles of God results in the kind of joy that's supernatural and it wells up and overflows like an artesian well, almost like living water. 
God shows up. Speaking of babies, I mentioned a surprise delivery in Phoenix a few years ago, about 30 years ago, as a matter of fact, in a few months. Joy and I were poor. We were discouraged. We had given away all our baby stuff back in Ann Arbor because we just knew that we weren't going to have another child. <laughs> surprise. We didn't know we were going to have the blessing of our third child. And now, of course, we have our Callie. And tiny baby Callie didn't have any baby clothes because we'd given them all away. And we were quite poor because we had taken a huge pay cut to go become church planters working for the home mission board back then in Arizona. And one afternoon, the doorbell rings. The UPS guy shows up on the front porch with a huge box on a dolly. Joy says, uh, I didn't order that. UPS guy, is this your name? Yes. Is this your address? Yeah. This is your box. <laughs> she gets the huge box inside the house, calls me into the living room. We open the box. It's filled with a bunch of colorfully wrapped smaller boxes. And on the top of the smaller boxes are a stack of photos. They're pictures of little girls that we'd never met before and a few ladies throwing a long distance baby shower. Joy reads the enclosed letter. We are the Girls in Action Missions Group at such and such a church in such and such a state. It wasn't even in our state. We called the Home Mission Board, that's who we were working for at the time, and asked if we could get the name of a couple that either was about to have or has just had a baby, and they gave us your name and address. So we threw a shower for you. We hope you enjoy these things as much as we enjoyed wrapping them for you. Our response? Laughter and tears. Callie was the best dressed kid at church on our grand opening Sunday. <laughs> we laughed because the situation was incredible. There's no way that we saw that coming. We hadn't asked anybody for it. We've been praying, God, I guess you're going to have to provide somehow, but we're not sure how yet. It was completely unknown to us how he was going to take care of that specific need. And he went way above our need and gave us far more than we ever could have even dreamed at that time. God's just funny that way. <laughs> this reversal of circumstance is very common in the Bible. And there's good reason for that. We'll wrap up today's look at humor in the Bible with a few reasons why this is a common theme. There's this thing called irony. We see that. Good example of that is in the book of Esther, because the antagonist, the evil Haman, is hung on his own gallows. This is a huge reversal, and the bad guy gets what he deserves, and there's just some satisfaction that the justice is seen that he's actually hung on the same gallows that he had built for somebody else. And there's an unexpectedly funny wordplay in the translation into the English language that you don't even catch in the Hebrew, because Haman sounds a lot like hangman now, doesn't it? Bum, bum, bum. One of the most serious an important laughter-producing ironies in the Bible has to do with the biggest story of all, and that is God's plan of redemption. In theological terms, we would call that restorative irony. In theology, restorative irony is God through Christ turning everything on its head and restoring what was once broken. It's providing a way back to himself, a way to be reconciled from lost sinners who need a savior. That's restorative irony. And that is the most important message of scripture. On the cross, everything's backwards. It appears that Jesus is cursed, but it turns out he's being blessed. 
his name will be exalted above all names. On the cross, it looks like Jesus is weak, but in fact, he's strong. It appears that as Jesus dies, he is finished. But the reality is, it is finished. It meaning his redemptive work. Everything necessary to reconcile us to God has been accomplished on the cross by Christ. The result of Jesus' work on the cross is victory, therefore, and not defeat. All these ironies in the Bible are designed by God because they all point to the ultimate restorative irony of his son, Jesus, who's a roaring lamb. Isn't that ironic? Mm -hmm. And here's the setup for us. We're lost. We've all sinned. We have nothing at our disposal to help ourselves out of our impossible situation. We're separated from God because of sin and we are helpless. And then God shows up. He shows up through Jesus, the word who becomes flesh. He shows up through his word, which is inspired by him, which we're reading today. He shows up through unmistakable events in our lives that we might try to brush off as coincidence, but deep inside, the Holy Spirit is saying, ah, you shouldn't brush this off so quickly. This has got to be a God thing. He shows up today by friends and loved ones who display his love to us in ways that seem remarkable. And we think, why would they do that? Because it's the Holy Spirit at work revealing God's grace and goodness and sacrificial love. He shows up in so many ways showing us this restorative irony. And he may be showing up today. He may be tugging at your heart right now, in fact, because the Holy Spirit is really persistent that way. He shows up because he loves you so much that he wants you to be connected to him like a branch that's connected to a vine. And all the awe-inspiring wonder of God is revealed to us on purpose and sometimes there's humor in the way that that purpose is presented. But when the humor points to a restorative irony, and when it helps us remember the lesson we're being told and taught, it helps us to stick tight to that lesson and remember it. And when the realization of God's restorative irony breaks in on us, it produces the greatest joy and laughter on the planet. So let's pray now that that same joyful spirit that we've seen in the Bible and in these examples will inhabit your heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that we have good reasons to celebrate, even with joyful laughter, sometimes at the great reversals that you bring into our lives. And I'm grateful for the greatest reversal of all brought about to us by your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the debt of our sin when we were helpless to do so ourselves. May we incorporate all of the good blessings you have for us by simply trusting him with our lives, admitting our sin, confessing it, accepting forgiveness, and putting you at the center of our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.